This is a Studio Scotch podcast presented by Scotch College, Western Australia. Hi, this is Sam Sterrett. And I'm Steve McLean. And this is The Range Project, a podcast that explores the benefits and challenges of interdisciplinary education. It gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest on The Range Project, singer-songwriter and Australian rock and roll royalty, Cav Templey. As the lead singer of iconic band Eskimo Joe, Cav has had a career most musicians can only dream of, releasing six albums, winning eight ARIA Music Awards, three of which charting at number one with the all-time Aussie classic Black Fingernails Red Wine. We caught up with Cav ahead of Eskimo Joe's performance at the 2021 AFL Grand Final. Cav shares some amazing insights from his career at the top of the music industry, his ongoing commitment to the creative life, and plans for an upcoming songwriting session with Scotch students. We bring you Cav Templey. Um, we're joined by a storyteller, a true creative, an alchemist, a podcaster, a producer, and a man with one of the most distinctive voices. Um, multi-platinum award winner, singer-songwriter, frontman of Eskimo Joe, Cav Templey. Whoa. I feel like there should have been Is like that good? a yeah, it should have been like one of those uh, like a fake applause. Like, <laughs> hey, that's what I needed after that. Amazing. And, and yeah. when Sam talks, yeah. Oh, oh you know the headphones. I'll on. Do, it, do do the Sam talk one. I heard I heard the applause. Oh yes, it's a classic. Get get out the uh, the 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 hooked um, walking cane and pull him off stage. Yeah. yeah. What makes you more nervous? Coming and talking to us at Studio Scotch or performing in front of tens of thousands of people? Well, definitely Studio Scotch. I mean, you know, there's uh, we're in the old boys' room at the moment, so there's a lot of history here, so there that, is. that's important. Um, you Look, I don't, the, the whole when do you get nervous uh, question is always a funny one because I definitely do get nervous from time to time. I have conversations when, like, big events are coming up and there's a lot of, you know, uh, that kind of what if starts to go were around. Were you always it. nervous or was it just... Like, was there a time when you go, oh, yeah, that's, I'm okay with this now? I think what happens is once there's a, there's a kind of perfect storm when you actually get on stage and you're doing it, um, where, you know, the part of the nervous reaction is you start to play the scenario through in your head over and over again. And yeah. so if it's a really big show, you, d- you start to imagine what you're wearing, you know, it's always a good thing. That's your armor, you know, and then you get on stage and in your head and you're like, okay, then I'm going to do this little move. And between that song, I'll do a little scissor kick and, you know, whatever. You just start to actually play the performance out in your head. So by the time you get there, you've kind of almost done the performance. Well, and don't, you, you don't think about all the bad things that you're going to potentially do, like play the wrong chords. Or well, there, the there's, gonna there's a bit of that going on, but... I have to say I've been in some pretty large scenarios in Eskimo Joe where things have gone terribly wrong. And you know what? We survived and it was fine and we got through the gigs. So the more of those, I think it's that what if of, you know, what could, you know, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? So far, some pretty bad things have happened and really I've got through every show. So it's, yeah. I've survived to tell the tale. You've adapted. Yep. Well, you you do podcasts as well, and I've listened to a couple of them. The first thing you tend to ask is where do your ideas come from, and so I thought that might be a good one to ask you. Where do my ideas come from? And when do they? And oh, when do they come as well? When do they come? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I would say you know when you least expect it. I mean, I'm, one of the podcasts I did um, for the Hat Jam series was with Kevin Mitchell, and he he explained it really well. I. I couldn't explain it better myself which but it's it's often like you know when you're doing the dishes or you're doing quite a menial task where suddenly these kind of ideas um pop into your head and and probably the most so is it themes or is it actual tunes is it like what, uh, what are the ideas i'll usually a combination of both you know like it just kind of pops in of this like a little spark of a half-formed idea and then you just start to kind of flesh that out and you know we were talking about the you know when you get nervous the what ifs the exact same thing happens in the positive where you start to go, what if we do this or what if it, that happens? And then, you know, before you know it, you've built up this grandiose idea of what you could do with this tiny little, like, you know, kernel of an idea and you're kind of on, on your, on your way. And, you know, some of those ideas make it to the grandiose stage and some of them, you know, just stay a little kernel. But I, I think there's that, that moment between when you've just got an idea and the what ifs of it could become is kind of the most exciting point. Can, can I, can I ask in terms mm. of when those ideas come? Now that you've made so much, you know, great music, and you've worked with 
symphony orchestras and big producers and all that kind of stuff. When that idea pops into your head, do you now and now that you've got all this understanding of all these, you know, broader things of working with orchestras and that kind of thing, does that idea then that that pops in, can it be more broader in its in its realization in your mind, if that makes sense? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it happens in increments. Like you know, you could use the old like you know, when you get to the top of a mountain, you you spot another mountain that looks even bigger and more exciting. Uh, that that's that definitely works for that. You know, like I think when we first started with Eskimo Joe, we um, me and my 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 bandmate Joel had been in another band called Freud's Pillow, which were like which is such a like funk metal name. You know, like in in Perth, there was a particular era where we were just exiting out of metal and funk and so there was a horrible combination of funk and metal that came together um so yeah me and joel had that band going on and so when we started eskimo joe we had a real idea of the type of music we wanted to make which was not going to be funk metal and um we we created this ep called sweater and we thought you know wouldn't it be great to play the Grosvenor Backroom, which was like the big, you know, venue you played back in the day, um, and sell out the Grosvenor Backroom and sell 500 CDs, which what we, we call gold in Perth, you know, and, and that happened. But what was amazing is once we did that, <clears throat> we got played, that song got played on Triple J and suddenly we were like, oh, oh my God, there's this whole other world. And so then we went into our next recording. We had this slightly broader view of the horizon and we were like, okay, cool. Let's, let's a bit more ambitious again. And then we kind of, the horizon kind of opened up again a little bit because we started touring and we started playing with all these other bands. We did this, you know, I remember one of the amazing tours we did was this, um, uh, you would do these six week tours around Australia. It's about as many shows as you could do in one tour, you know, without, you know, playing, the same place twice. So you would do six week runs back in the day as a support band and sl- slowly make your way up to being a main act. And we did a, 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 with our second EP, we did a tour with The Living End and they are a phenomenal live band. And we learnt so many amazing tricks off touring with them. But <clears throat> by the I don't time. So you're jumping up on top of your bass. Well, no, I'd, I'd do, jump on, on the kick drum instead. That was, that was about as much as I yeah. could do. But, um, but yeah, by the end of that tour, because we played with some other amazing bands, we were like, our horizons opened again. We're like, oh, okay. And they were like an international band at the time. And there was a, another band who I should remember um, who played as well, who were the huge band from Wales. But we just were exposed to bigger audiences and bigger shows and started playing festivals. And, and again, slowly, slowly, these, these horizons open up. And so if you kind of fast forward to an album like Black Fingernails, Red Wine, we'd kind of hit this point where we knew our craft quite well. We could write songs to the best of our abilities. But then we also had this quite – we wanted to do something quite, you know, widescreen. We, we'd got to the point where we were like, okay, we have an idea of world domination now. Like, mm, you know, mm. and it wasn't – we weren't it – did, we didn't wake up in the morning on our very first Eskimo Joy Jam and go – world domination we we kind of came at it in these small increments so by the time we got to black fingernails we were like we, we felt quite capable and and aware of what we were trying to achieve yeah what well, i mean one of the questions i had here because i was really interested to hear what you had to say to this because it seemed to me when you released girl you know girl had a lot of quite um more playful sort of songs and then a song as a city that there was some real it was like you a leveling up of songwriting that yeah blew me away like when when i heard those songs come out um there was i remember listening to super unknown sound sound garden i remember getting that cd and and this was the same song as a city it was like something as they've gone to a whole nother level of songwriting here was there like was there there was a moment there because you're talking about these incremental changes but was there a conscious decision to go okay we're gonna. We're really gonna take this on. It was just that you were just getting Look, good feedback. I think incrementally a combination of the two. Because again, you know that you get to the top of that mountain, and you see the next. What's achievable now that you've got this new skill base? You know, going into an album to make a going into a, a studio like to make a proper record is a huge experience, and I'm so thankful that we've had that in our band. Like we got to go into these really iconic studios, like Sing Sing Studio in mm-hmm. Melbourne, and mm-hmm. you know, and work with like really amazing producers. And so by the time we'd done our first album like that is such 
it, like every time I've made lots of records now, and I, it's like it's like giving birth. You like instantly forget how hard the labor was, you know, because you get to the end of the thing, you're like, as you're three quarters of the way through, you're like, this is so much work. Why? Why have I decided? Why did I say yes to doing this? And then you get to the end of it, you're like, brilliant, that's amazing. Let's do it again, you know. And so you, when we did Girl, we we sharpened up so many of our, our you know, whatever analogy you want to use um our spears for skewering good songs um but no we we'd sharpened our teeth so much that we uh we we were like ready to kind of take on the world we did a lot of touring again and we progressed from girl to a song as a city we progressed from being the support band to the headlining band for the first time so you know with those responsibilities we had to pick up our skills again so by the time i got to you know writing the songs for a songs a city you know, it was an age thing. I was 24. So, you know, I think there's something magical that happens to writers at the age of 24. A lot of amazing records have been written. And Did you know it was good after you'd made it? Yeah, I was so – I felt like I'd achieved, like, from what I'd thought, like, you know, from that kernel of There's of some really timeless idea. songs on that on that record. And I think – do you, do you listen to, like, one of those and just go, oh, man, that's just – that's going to stand the test of time? I think at the time, yes, we were so um, proud of what we'd achieved because, like, you know, from what we heard in our minds to putting it onto a record, we were like, yes, we've done it. We've done – we've completed the idea to the best of our abilities and we were totally satisfied with everything from the artwork to the mix to the writing. We were like super, super into it. Um, but when you make a record, you don't really go back and listen to it again. You just start playing those songs live and then you start getting like a you know, reaction from the audience. You're like, oh, that's working. Let's write songs like that, you know. Um, and it actually wasn't until like kind of – COVID times, I guess, that um, I started to actually go back and listen to those records again because we re-released them all on vinyl and I'm a huge vinyl lover. Like I'm trying to collect all my favourite songs on vinyl. I feel like in this digital age, it's the last, you know, if if the world disappears and Skylab goes down, you know, like we'll still have vinyl at least and be like, ooh. Um, Except my, my vinyl player is connects via Bluetooth, so I'm stuck. Well, there you go. You're, you're, you're in trouble, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, how do you break down what is good about the song that you can go, oh, this song really worked? How do you break that down? I think it's got like – as you develop your craft as a songwriter, you know, you get few more and more tricks and little chord progressions. Those things are mainly irrelevant, though they're, you know, they're a good thing to have in your bag of tricks. If you get an emotional response out of it yourself, like, you know, you get those goosebumps when you play in a room or you feel that emotional connection when you, when you play it to someone else, you're like, you know, you're onto the right thing. And so a song like From the Sea was really one of those songs where I remember from writing it to playing it to the guys for the first time to still now we still play that every single time we do a gig and it's the song we close our shows with and we still get that emotional response. You know, there's just something. It doesn't even matter what there's about. It's just like there's just something there. I just find there's so many parts to it that are distinct as well and so you can see that everyone's collaborated really well. When did Stu jump into the picture? Well, me and Stu uh, kind of – he moved next door to me when I was about five years old. And we bonded over a love of uh, He-Man and Masters of the Universe. We had, like, one Christmas that was amazing. Like, I got, like, a bunch of He-Man and, like, castles and stuff. And he got the same but different. Yeah. And we we just, like, he got, like, Wolf Mountain or whatever it was called. So, we, like, we played and we had a really good time. And then uh, we became best friends, you know, went on family holidays together and all kinds of things. And then uh, I'd started – he was kind of vaguely into music. And I started the band with Joel and then – I kind of was not really into the music we were writing. I d- I was happy doing it. It had got to a point where it was I uh, you know it was sounding. We were doing gigs and making records and stuff, but uh, I didn't really want to write that kind of music. So I went to Stu, and me and Stu both loved the Pixies and mm. you know, a bunch of other different bands and the Beatles, of course. And so we started writing songs that were just for us. Like it wasn't gonna like we liked what we we're doing, but it wasn't gonna be like we weren't trying to write for anyone. And those songs uh, grew into the first um, bunch of Eskimo Joe songs that we did, and they were kind of fun and irreverent and, you know, poppy but kind of jokey, I guess, um, because we were like 18, 19 years old. Um, And then Joel made the fatal mistake of going, I'd love to be in a band with you where you tell everyone what to do. And ironically, Joel's the one who tells everyone what to do in our band. (laughs) So what he was actually saying to me was like, we should start a band where I tell everyone what to do. Um, But no, true to his form – 
Joel was really believed in me as a songwriter and Joel's uh, skill set is as a producer. So we hit off this kind of beautiful relationship. I think when myself and Stu and Joel first got into a room together, because we tried out a bunch of drummers and Joel played guitar in, in, uh, in Freud's Pillow. So we were, and he was like, I'll play drums. And I was like, brilliant. And he came in. And yes, his drumming was great and it suited what we were doing, but there was a chemistry of the three of us in a room that I'd never felt before. And it was just like, ah, oh, this is what it feels like when you get the right group of people together. And so I think in the early days of Eskimo Joe, like the songs were okay, but it was really about people felt so comfortable with us as a group of people, just whether we were on stage or in an interview that it, it really kind of paved the way. Was there a moment in that jam room when you mm. were writing those early songs together that, mm. that you could point back to? That you're just sort of looking around the room, going, "Yeah, that's that's it. That, that there's the magic right there." Or is it? I mean, it's hard to reflect. But yeah, look, it is hard to reflect. But I think it was it was pretty obvious straight away. You just get that feeling, of kind of electricity up the spine, when a song is good and everyone in the room is feeling it. And so we had that kind of chemistry going on straight away. There was a real electricity, just a right, just an ease at the same time, which I just I knew that was going to be the right thing and you know again i was ambitious but i didn't i didn't expect that we'd be doing it 20 something years later mm. and all the songs are written collaboratively or they uh, people kind, come in with ideas how does that work in the early days um it was we just kind of like all of us would come in with an idea and we'd go to a rehearsal room somewhere and we'd literally play it over and over again until we're like, yeah, that sounds great. And then the next weekend we'd be playing it live in front of people and, you know, that would be a buzz. Um, but I think around about the time of Girl, um, we sat down and the producer we had was a guy called Ed Buller and he just sat us down and was just like, I think that you, because Stu was doing a lot of the singing, we'd be taking turns at singing and stuff and um, he was the one who said, I think you should write the songs and sing. I think you should do this and you do that. And um, and it was kind of a, I thought it was going to be an awkward conversation, but I had to kind of go to the guys because we were taking turns doing the McCartney and, and Lennon thing, taking turns singing songs on the record. But the producer just said, I think you should sing all the songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I said, how do you guys feel if I just be the singer? And everyone was okay with that. So that gave me the confidence moving into, I think with with Girl, there was still like, I was still writing the majority of the tunes, but everyone would kind of bring in ideas. There was a few stew songs in there, but by the time we got to a song's the city, it was basically me as the songwriter, the other guys as my collaborators and producers, basically. And were you? Did you know you're kind of still developing your voice during Girl, and mm. because it is very distinctive, I, I know instantly. It doesn't matter if it's cover or anything. I know that's Cav. Mm. Um, did you? How did you develop it? Did you start by imitating artists that you love and then move on? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think every – I probably still do it, you know. Like, <laughs> I still hear records that I love and try and imitate bits and pieces. But I think more and more my voice has just fallen into its own thing. And I think male voices are really interesting. They don't really – get to a good place until they're about 28 to 32, you know. You, you hear it in, in artists like Michael Hutchins, you know, like when he was doing the In Excess stuff, I think he was quite probably quite a vulnerable vocalist. That's why he kind of weighed in on that kind of sex identity thing. But he when he went away and did the Max Q stuff and came back and did that X-Route album, as a vocalist, he'd, he'd picked up massively. And that was kind of his late 20s, you know, early 30s by that stage. And I think – Male vocalist, it takes a while to get there. So when I look back and listen to the early Eskimo Joe stuff, I'm kind of like I cringe a little bit, and I can hear the people, the artists that I was trying who, to imitate. Who are you trying to imitate. Well, in Girl, um, you know, I've always been a huge Frank Black fan, and you know, from the Pixies. So there's always that that kind of element going in, and how he delivers. Um, you know, I love, you know, love the Beatles, of course. Huge Neil Young fan. Um, you know, and then. All kinds of stuff, you know, like, again, when we were doing Black Females, Red Wine, I was really into Eurythmics at the time and I was kind of trying to do, like, I'd never really played with the Michael Hutchins vocals, so I was kind of trying to do Michael Hutchins does a rhythmic Eurythmics mm-hmm. kind of vibes. Um, but, you know, I think, so with Girl, we were really into a band called Granddaddy. That was a huge influence for us on that record. By the time we did a Songs of the City, I was a huge Wilco fan, so there was a lot more of those Wilco influences coming through. By the time was a song as a city, like I said, there was kind of some in excess and you know Hutchinsy kind of vibes as well as Ice House and all those kinds of people going through. But then bands like Interpol and stuff who were mm. really big at the time were quite influential on in what we were doing. 
Um, and then I, I'm not, I'm not sure. By the time we got to the next couple of albums, I just morphed into Cav, you know, yeah. like by that stage. So yeah. So that that transition from a song as a city to Black Fingernails, Red Wine, like mm. that seemed to me songwriting wise that you changed the songwriting process a little bit because it started to feel like you're playing. This is for big audience, you know. This mm. is big, powerful, you know, stadium style kind of songs. Does that did that change the way you? wrote songs in the, in the sense that, you know, you're not just sitting on an acoustic guitar writing the song and then bringing yeah. it toward the band. Yeah, yeah you, you this, I mean, you, I think I can, I can probably go back and map it out from all of the different um, things we're doing. In, in our early days, like I said, we were in our first two EPs, we were like in the jam room and then we were, you know, in at the Grosvenor back room in front of, you know, a bunch of all ages kids just playing really fast and loud and then doing living end tours and stuff. So playing faster and punkier as we went. Mm. Um, and then by the time we got to girl, you know, like there was a lot more um, hanging out in the bedroom and using four track recorders and stuff. So, so the music kind of morphed into that style a bit. And obviously we were listening to blur and Supergrass as well. And, mm. you know, so those kinds of influences were fusing in. Um, then we toured that record and lo and behold, you know, it, it did well and we got to play in front of bigger and bigger audiences. So yes, then that kind of, we, you, every time you play in front of a crowd, you're like that little trick that I did tonight works really, really well. I'm just going to incorporate that into a song and mm-hmm. all of those things come in and, you know, again, stuff like from the sea, how it's got that, boom, boom, poof, you know, mm-hmm. you just do that bedroom guitarist thing where you like, imagine when you write a song, imagine playing it in front of lots of people. Like I, I remember doing that with the song foreign land, you know, we, it yeah. had been on this whole journey, but by the time we'd written the the bridge section, which is this kind of big Led oh, Zeppelin, I was we, watching that last night. That's just such an epic. Um, it's oh, such man. a great Led Zeppelin bridge. Yeah, it's yeah, gone. fully. And uh, and so yeah, we I think we jammed that that riff over and over again in the jam room for like about an hour, yeah. just imagining in our heads. Like imagine playing that in front of lots of people. You know that that childhood fantasy just still is on the tip of your tongue all the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, great. back to childhood. Did what? What sparked your interest in music? Did you have a musical family? Did your mum sing to you growing up? Like, what was? What were the things that really sparked that interest? Um, yeah, look, there was always music playing around the house. Um, you know, my mum played a bit of piano and sung a bit, so that was kind of a thing. You know, that you could you could do. But I, I don't. You know, I've never considered myself a super proficient musician. I mean, I can play, but I wouldn't say like, hire that man to play this symphony orchestra. Like, I'm not that guy. But I think what I've always, um, I've known. Do you think that helps with your originality in some of the melodies? Because if you if you are proficient at something, you tend to go to the, Defi- the standards and the uh, Definitely. I think there's pros and cons in writing to being a really, you know, having terrible grammar and <laughs> and not knowing what a semicolon is or whatever. But um, <laughs> I think there's there are events just there but I think um you always like I, I look at someone like Luke Steele is a really good example like he's actually not a great singer really cool voice but because of his lack of skills to be able to sing you know so beautifully he writes really beautiful melodies his imagination like goes, he's constricted so he has yeah to so so doing. he expands another part of his vocabulary and I think for me um I I was always really comfortable in in storytelling um, and storytelling about, you know, my own stories. I like this idea of being this kind of, you know, journalistic kind of war front, you know, journalist just, you know, writing reports from the front and sending them back. And that was always the way that I approached songwriting. So um, they're about, are they about other things or are they about you? Well, I think I liked in the early days, I liked the idea of writing real stories, but just disguising them with just enough, you know, analogies and metaphors that that whoever the guilty party was wouldn't know what I was writing about. And the fact that that would become so public, like I would get a buzz out of that. I'd be, but then I quickly realized that, you know, once you write these songs and you put them out into the world, it's like, they're not your stories anymore. Mm-hmm. You've actually created just this mirror for other well, people to get their it's stories. The beauty of yeah. Making it a little bit. Uh, yeah. yeah uh, you don't quite know what it's, what you're talking about. And so everyone can have a little bit of an impact to that story. So back to your a question of like when, you know, where, where do my musical stylings come from? I think my, my love, a want to always be a storyteller was a driving force. But as a child, I would make up the most 
elaborate lies and I would and they weren't just like oh yeah I just um you know I won that competition it was always just like oh did you and then this happened and then it would be like this fantastical story to the point where uh, like sometimes they believe me and then at a certain point they were like no I, maybe when I lost my cuteness of being a really small child they was like that is just an all-out lie um, and <laughs> and so those lies, I, you know, which were always slightly based on the truth, but were just these elaborations on these things that had gone on for me, they evolved into my songwriting. And uh, when I wrote the song Liar, um, my, I played it to my brother, who's seven years older, and he, he stifled a laugh straight away. He went, because, <laughs> you know, he was like, oh, you're writing this about yourself. But, um, you know, I, luckily I left, I left my life of crime behind when I was about, you know, eight years old and moved on. So moved, moved on to school. And were, there, were there teachers that kind of fostered and encouraged your music? Did you have musical talent back then? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, like I played bits and pieces, but it wasn't really until my teenage years that I really discovered, you know, my own ability and, and drive to do it myself. But I think probably one of the most important moments for me musically like i'd started i'd i'd gone from you know playing violin badly for many many years to um playing bass because i thought well the bass has got four strings you know it must be just like a violin they're completely different instruments um and so i, I got a bass and i saved up my own money and bought this bass that looked like sid vicious's bass and um and then i sat in my room and i learned the in- baseline intro to Sweet Child of Mine, you know, the do, 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 do. And I totally worked that out myself and I was so impressed that I could do this that it just, you know, drove me on to do it. And so I was hanging out with my friends. Everyone, this is Fremantle in the late 80s, early 90s, and everyone were pretty much bogans. And then and every band needs a bass player. Well, every yeah. Well, we, we had a kind of decide. It was the beginning of like, you know, the Black Album by Metallica had just mm-hmm. come out. It was all about metal. Anyway, I left Australia on a like a two-month holiday um, and ended up going to this school in England for about the next year or so of my life. Um, and at that school, they had a music um, room and it was like a, just an amazing um, alternative boarding school where in between maths lessons, I could run off and I could just jam on the bass. And they had a music festival there once a year. So all these in- these instruments had been donated to the school and there was all like, it was an amazing white Fender jazz bass. And I was like into Sting and that was what, you know, the bass player in Sting's band you. So I, it was great and I and I kind of got out of my metal, you know, trappings and got into all of these other kind of much more world music influences and dance music was breaking in, in you know, ra- the rave scene had just started in the UK. So I came back to Australia, which was still, you know, Fremantle in the early 90s, which was still in this little bubble, you know, that I'd left it, like exactly the same, but I was like now dressed as like a raver and I'd like gotten back into Sting and stuff like that. And so all my metal friends and me all kind of went separate ways, but I'd, I developed like skills, like I'd actually kind of broken through that initial initial wall. I th- I think learning an instrument is like being a long distance runner. Like you kind of get to a point where, if you've just started an instrument, where it's really hard and you don't think you can go on, and then you break through, and then suddenly you've got this whole other it's you know a mental game. Yeah, did so so there was there must have been an explosion of of writing and creating when you got back yeah well that i mean i was about 14 going on 15 at that time so i just started to i got back and really started to write my own songs properly for the first time um and then not long after that about a year after that was when i met joel and started a band with joel and another chap called simon leach who went off to do little birdie and um uh, yeah so 16 onwards i was i was hooked and i was in and i, I was doing uh theatre at John Curtin, but I quickly, you know, stopped turning up to my theatre classes just so I could, you know, play music, basically. Did you share that with uh, um, uh, Kevin from, uh, you know, that love of theatre? <laughs> well, from Kevin from Jebediah? You know, yeah, so- well, I think he he's a much better actor than I am, for sure. In fact, it's embarrassing when I act. I should have never tried to do acting. Uh, but Kevin's a really good actor and also loves Cats, the musical. So if you if you just hype him up, he will break into full on song and dance. Uh, you know, of uh, any any scene out of Cats, he knows it all. I've heard that la- that latest um, release of Cats is meant to be absolutely I saw awful. Tomatoes gave it some percent or something. It just they just buried it, man. It came out and then it just like no one even talked about it ever again. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> There's been a lot of really awesome artists that come out of Perth. What do you think it is that um, that kind of drives that? Is it a necessity to 
to just kind of break out of this small little town or yeah i think isolation breeds creativity really um you know i the part of me is again my disclaimer is i am from Fremantle, so i am a massive hippie as well but there you know there is definitely a connection to land there there's something about you know the ocean and the river meeting the ocean i think there's something potent about that because the amount of like creatives that come out of Fremantle from like you know your Tim Wintons and Joan Londons and Craig Sylvies you know to your you know your John Butler trios and San Siscos and Tame and Parlors and Eskimo Joe or whatever there's like that is a really small bit of real estate to create so so much amazing art um, that I think that it has to be a combination of being so isolated being this you know beautiful little melting pot of like you know, market gardening, hardworking families with the hippie aesthetic that came in in the 70s. Yeah, and that com- combined with some kind of mysterious juju that comes off the land. I think it's, um, yeah, definitely, there's definitely something in the water there. Mm. Can I ask, um, so in terms of what's inspired you musically beyond other musicians um, and other musicians that you've loved and um, people that you've come into contact with in the music industry, who outside of that, has been really inspiring for you? You know, if you think about poets and writers or, you know, from other disciplines, other areas. Definitely writers, you know, in, in general. I mean, art art is – I definitely connect with visual art and, you know, but I, if I'm not as much of a nerd when it comes to fine art. But, I, but I'm a huge nerd when it comes to, to writers for sure. I mean, I, I, I see storytelling in the writing as something that – I, I would aspire to, you know, to be able to write a book, you know, just I love the titles of books. I mean, they've had a whole entire book to just boil down this one meeting. And uh, like if I'm looking for inspiration to write a song, I'll just go to a bookshop and read the titles of books. I'm like, because there's just so much in a title. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I find, you know, poets in general, like I I kind of discovered poetry properly when I was writing A Song as a City and I I was writing these like basically really short stories really is what they were. I would go to Geno's in Fremantle every day and I would sit down and, and I would write, fill one page. I had this discipline that I, where I'd set the, you know, set the timer for like 10 minutes and get my coffee and I'd have to fill the page. And if I got to the end of the page, I would have to go back to the start of the page and read it until the timer went off like, and just basically do a, a power edit on it. And what came out of this was all these really short stories which turned into the songs on A Song of the City. That's why you can kind of hear progression in, in the thing because there's a bit more – you know, thought put into it. But I went to a, a, I would go to the bookshops and I would like, you know, just leaf through, you know, books. And, um, and I first discovered Charles Bukowski at that point in time. And I, w- and I read what he was doing and it was essentially exactly what I was doing, you know, with these A Song as a City songs. Whereas you read his poetry and it's like accessible enough, but it's still art and, you know, amazing. And he's writing these really short stories in these poems, basically. Um, and it allowed me to kind of call myself like an artist for the first time. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not just some dude writing a song. I'm an artist. I'm writing. Um, and so that kind of opened the floodgates for me to really get into poetry. And Leonard Cohen's one of my all-time favorite songwriters. And so I really got into buying a lot of his poetry and, and that was a big influence. And so for a lot of years since, if I'm really having trouble with a song, you know, as opposed to putting on music going on, what are they doing in this chorus? I'll often just flip through my Leonard Cohen poetry or, and I'll just go and read his construction and how he puts it together and just his turn of like expression. And I'll be like, okay, cool. All right, I think I've got an idea and I'll go back and, and that'll drive it. Um, but then on top of that, yeah, I, I devour books like nothing else and probably nothing too challenging. But I, but I do feel that reading keeps that internal um, monologue going all the time. And that's really all songwriting is, is tapping into that internal monologue. And you yeah, ever but- get stuck? Like, do you think, oh, I don't know what to write here? And uh, I think some songs are harder to write than others. I think that, you know, some songs are like a Teflon poo. They just like come out and you're just like, oh, that was Did easy. Did that even happen? Yeah, that didn't even happen. I don't even need to wipe after that. <laughs> and, you know, and it doesn't mean those songs are any better or worse. Um, but some songs you have to go through every chord, every lyric, 
and then you have to review it five times. Then you'll do a reggae version and a metal version and a whatever version. Well, isn't it the, the initial idea that the, is that the hardest thing? Because I think the initial idea is the easiest part. Really? I think it's actually completing an idea is the hardest part. So every What's songwriter, the refinement side of the yeah, well, d- process, deciding right? when to put that brush down. Where you've like, there is, I could probably keep drawing on this, but I'm just going to put the brush down, and this idea is now finished to the best of my abilities, and I'm going to complete that and put it out into the world because so many songwriters and and artists and musicians create but really the only difference between the people who are you know published authors or people who put out records are the people who put stuff out whether people like it or not doesn't make that person any less prolific or amazing in what they do it's just you have to complete ideas and put them out otherwise they're just ideas they're not they're not a tangible thing well, i think that a lot of creatives have these amazing broad ideas and then can't refine them and can't iterate on to get to the point where you know they're functional so you you're obviously a functional creative because you you create works of art that are that have Look, been successful. I'm going to go back to what I was saying before, which is every time I make a record, I just forget how much work is involved. It's just ridiculous. There's so much and it's it's brain splitting stuff. But in saying that, you do get a kick out of it at the same time. But there there has to be hard work involved. But like, And also back to what you're saying before, which is, you know, do you ever get stuck for ideas? It's not that you ever get stuck for ideas. You just kind of get lazy. Like you just got to do the work. And that's really hard sometimes. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about, that I read somewhere recently, Nick Cave, you know, has this very hyper-disciplined yeah, approach that, where he's got his office, you know. I don't even care if Nick Cave doesn't do that, but uh, <laughs> this is I've, I I base my life on Nick Cave doing that. I'm just like, well, Nick Cave goes to the office every day and he writes and, you know, he shuts the door and he just does it. <laughs> but I don't even care if he doesn't, but the fact that I think he does is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think he said he gets to have a break from his kids for for yeah. eight hours when he's um, but but he genuinely has a you know an, an office with a writing desk and a piano and mm. he's like I just go in from nine to five yeah and some days nothing comes at all and I walk out the door and then I come back in the next day from nine to five and then mm. something comes at twelve. Well, you don't want to argue with Nick Cave. Well, no. but I just wanted. No, I'm, I'm no sure I, I, be, I believe in that. Right? I'm, I'm, I've always been a, a similar disciplinarian. Disciplinarian. That's the wrong word. Um, but I've always followed a similar discipline uh, with that thing, which is whether it be a space in your house or you're lucky enough to have a studio space, like just go in, you know, Monday to Friday, take the weekend off, great. If an idea comes on the weekend, fantastic. But I think it's something that I got into even more having children because, uh, you know, I had a jam room for a long time at the, on the outside of my house and, you know, I would basically go to work there every day. And if you work, you know, five days a week, you know, at the end of a year, you've got all of this content that you can then put out. And if that's what you make your money on, then you're doing your craft, you're doing your trade. But mm. but forget it if you think you're just going to walk into a room once in a while when, when lightning strikes and create art. It's like, yeah, you might get one song out of it, but that's not how the greats do it. They mm. all just go to their workshop every day. And like Nick Cave says, sometimes you're like, this is terrible. This is the worst thing I've ever done. In fact, I'm going to get a job at McDonald's because it's all I'm qualified for. Um, and then some days you're like, I'm a genius. I know I wasn't going to say that out loud, but I'm actually a genius. Um, and you just go through these kind of continuous cycles and that can be brutal in itself. But as long as you keep you know, doing it. We then- can have strategies too. In your, in your podcast, you have the the you know Hat Jam right? Well, Hat did, Jam. Did you actually write any songs like that? Yeah. Well, Hat Jam the the Hat Jam podcast came out of uh, that whole th- of just trying to make it fun. You know, I'd I'd done a song as a city, and that was me just with an acoustic guitar. You know, writing my Bukowski poems and writing chords over the top of them. That really worked. Got into Black Fingernails, Red Wine, which was kind of an extension of that. We I still followed that same thing of trying to make a song work on an acoustic guitar, but it became this widescreen thing. So by the time I got to the album Inshallah, I was like, you know what? Like, and we toured Black Fingernails Red Wine for three years or so. Like that album just had legs. We just kept going and going. Um, and I sat down to start writing the next record, and I was just like, bored. I'm bored. This is boring. I need. To, I just need to do something else. Mm-hmm. So I invited my good friend Steve Parkin over, and uh, we. I, I was like, I've got this idea. Basically, we're just going to write down a bunch of names of like bands that we love and song their favorite songs. We're going to put them into a hat. We're going to shake the hat up. We're going to pull out one song at a time. One song's going to be a verse. One song's a chorus. And we, and we did that for like a couple of weeks. And lo and behold, we came up with a bunch of songs, which ended up on the album Inshallah, which probably is the reason why Inshallah is quite a uh, eclectic sounding record. You know, like it's it's much more all over the place. But uh, I still love some of those songs. 
Um, but yeah, we wrote a bunch of songs in that process. And then I, by the end of that, I'd, I'd kind of like, well, that's, you know, I can't keep writing songs like that. That's not how it works. Um, but yes, I evolved that into a podcast series called Hat Jam. So if you're listening, uh, go check it out. <laughs> Available on all good. Yes. Streaming services. Yeah, whatever it is. Um, speaking of songwriting, we're going to get you to come in to teach some of our boys how to. Write some songs. Yes. Have you done that a bit in the past? Yeah, look, I love it. It's an extension of uh, being in the jam room with someone who might not be as accomplished a songwriter. It's like helping draw out those storylines and then giving them a structure to put those storylines into and then, most importantly, giving people deadlines. And I think that's, you know, what we were talking about before of, like, the difference between a song that sits in the, you know, the top drawer of your desk half finished to a song that's been put out is just setting the deadline, you know, and you might get to that deadline and go, okay, now I need to set another deadline. But that's essentially what uh, I'll do with your guys when I come in, because um, they're all probably really capable, creative guys, but really it's just about going, great, how do we complete a song in a day? And you've done this with established artists as well as yeah, yeah, well, and, amateurs. And it's yeah, it's a combination uh, from what I do in the studio to what you encounter in the real world. Like, so the reason why I do it is because it prepares people for, you know, if you are put in a real world scenario, writing a song for a pop star or 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 someone who's not a pop star, anyone. But generally, the way writing camps work is there's four people in a room, and you've got your artist, you've got two writers, and you've got a producer. And producer is going to sit there and press record and program some beats. The artist is going to want to get that single because that's why they're there. They probably just, you know, graduated from The Voice or one of those kind of programs. And then you've got two writers um, who are going to have to write something that is good enough that by the end of that day, that artist walks away going, I really want to put that on my record because that's how they get paid. So there's a commerce side to it, which is important as well if you want to be a professional songwriter. Um, so really what I do with uh, kids or adults or anyone who I work with, which is just basically put you in that scenario where we are going to work as hard as we can and it might be easy, it might be a Teflon moment or it might be uh, we might have to, you know, go to a bookshop and look at some spines and get inspired to write some words or whatever, you know, we just need to complete the work. And they don't have to have any ideas beforehand? No, or- you can come from absolutely nothing. And I actually, the the idea stems from what I would do at the coffee shop with my Bukowski years. <laughs> it sounds really romantic if I call them Bukowski years. I, it's actually more my Long Mac and Cheesecake years uh, at, um, uh, at, you know, having coffee and free and writing is basically the, how we start is we set the timer for 10 minutes. We get Every, everyone in the class writes and when that timer goes, they're not allowed to go past a page. When that timer goes, we look at what everyone's got, get a couple of people in the class to read out some, you know, ideas of, you know, if they're brave, always ask who's brave enough to do it first. Um, and, you know, everyone's, and then I'll kind of give a bit of feedback going, that's amazing. And, you know, and, and really teaching kids that that first draft is not the song because they then get together in a group and they edit that down together as a group. Everyone uses bits and pieces of their, their automatic writing is what, what, is what I call it. And then that becomes the beginning of their song. So that's just the kernel of the idea that what I don't tell them is that I don't give, don't tell them. A dang, <laughs> what happens? I'm happy for them to hit, prepare themselves and listen to this whole podcast, but um, I'm I'm I don't care if not a single word in that automatic writing session ends up in the final amazing song that they write. These are literally just the rungs of the ladder that will get you to the roof. It's just an idea, baby steps. Yep. And so when you go into those, um, you know, writing scenarios, whether they be an established artist or a brand new artist. I have an idea up my sleeve always and I call it like the sacrificial lamb because that idea never ends up in the song. But if you're like, oh, I've got this idea, it goes, yesterday, all my trouble seems so far away. Anyway, I just wrote it yesterday. I don't, I don't know what you think. Anyway, that'll always be the beginning of an idea that ends us up somewhere over there. But yesterday, you know, is never in there because, you know, it's just that. It's the trigger. Yeah, exactly. It's just that first idea to start jamming on. Yeah. It can be some pretty personal things, I guess, people, right? Do you get into the psychoanalysis of- 100%. I mean, that's what songwriting is, is like there's so much trust involved if you're collaborating with people. Like you have to go deep into whatever's going on in their their world and your world and you got to connect on that level. Otherwise, you're not going to get the good stuff. Mm. I think that is absolutely one of the biggest challenges for you know us as teachers in classrooms with kids mm. is getting, especially with creative work, is- mm. 
how do we get them to feel like they can really be their authentic, true self in front of this room of 25 other students? That's just, you know, and obviously Especially with someone like yourself. too. Yeah, just with each other and a teacher. I mean, obviously they, you're, you're a rock star, right? You're coming in to do a session with them. It's a totally different ball game because you've got this, you've got this kind of potency about the whole atmosphere that you're creating. But mm. if we can bottle that, but in a mainstream classroom setting, if you know what I mean. Well, I think that the t- as the teachers, and and this would be the same for myself. I mean, obviously, I have the skill set up my back, uh, you know, up my sleeve. To if I walk into uh, a room full of people and, and say we're going to write a song in a day, and if I see some people struggling, I'll be like, "How about this chord?" You know, like that's that's what I'm there for as the teacher. But in in general, in those scenarios, I never want to be insert myself into those songs because really that. All I'm doing is creating a structure and a situation for the group, the collaborative, um, you know, group to kind of get to that place together. With some good questioning too, you can get them to that place. Without yeah, as, and and then step away and don't impose any of your stuff. Obviously, if they need, they're like, we don't know what the chords are, and then they might sing me their melody. I'm like, well, you're playing those chords, but the melody, the chords for that melody are actually this, and so and then I'll leave that with them. Mm-hmm. So I'll give them little, you know, uh, you know little flagstones along the way that they can kind of follow, but really, you know, they have to try and get there themselves, I think. So what are the kind of kids that do well in this? Is it the the ones that are studying music all the way through or is it more of the cert kind of boys? I don't think uh, any of those things are that relevant. It's more to do with the people who um, are just it, – it's – it's never, it's never a drama. It's just like, yeah, cool, man. I'll be the guitarist in this one. No worries. I'll be the singer. Yep. Cool. We can use your lyrics. You know, it's just like, it's like being a really good housemate. You know, it's just like, if it's your, if your turn to do the dishes, you just do the dishes. You know, if you owe a few dollars on a bill, you just, yeah, just pay the extra dollar. That's, they're, they're the ones who are really successful in these groups because they just are adaptable. They're adaptable and they also just make it easy. If, if everyone's making it easy for each other and then recognizing and being positive going, that's a great idea. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Wicked. Let's do that. You know? And if they end up being the star or the person at the back, like really, you know, they're, they're the, the people who succeed the most. They're the people who just are always enabling everybody else. Willing to say yes. Mm. I think that's just, that's a principle true for classroom culture. You know, sure. when you're trying to teach. Oh, anything. Kids, I mean, anything, talking about adaptability, it's a concept we've talked about a, a fair bit, I think, and, and something we try and teach, but. So so relevant right now, you it know. Is. Like, like, what have you had to do in COVID? You can't tour exactly. You, you know. And you know, there's this uh, one of my very good friends is a chap called Josh Pike, who's a singer songwriter and you know, amazing dude. And we, I've been chatting to him, and he's been in lockdown and had to cancel like sixty shows or something ridiculous like that. And um, and he told me this concept a while ago, which is that you know, everyone has a relative happiness, which is that you know people in war zones or you know in suburbia their relative happiness no matter what's going on will always swing back to a similar relative happiness moment but what we're seeing in this time this uh, i'm going to say the words ready for the big button there, there's got to be a button you press ready ready for this these unprecedented times <laughs> that was the wrong one. <laughs> oh, okay ready i'll say it again ready that's all we need okay one two three these unprecedented times. It's like their intro thing. There you go, nice. So, Clearly professionals. So what what we're seeing in these this moment in time that we're going through is that yes, we can't actually go out on the road and do and clock on and clock off and do our you know make money from playing shows as musicians, and that's pulled the rug out of the carpet out of underneath us in a massive way in the music industry, like. As creatives, we can kind of go in hibernation for a while, but you're talking about managers, you know, guitar techs, uh, all these people who've lost their entire livelihood because you can't play shows, you can't tour. There's people who tour professionally all year round, in, from musicians to whoever. So really what we've had to do in this time, if you want to keep making money and living this extraordinary life that we live, is you have to adapt. And and some of the – I mean, the amount of balls I have in the air juggling in my – creative world at the moment i mean yes i do the education thing and there's the podcasting stuff i've got a solo career so i'm in the middle of doing another solo record i've got eskimo joe i produce people's albums and writing a book as well oh well hopefully now i'm gonna have to start writing a book i think i should um and (laughs) uh and then on on top of that you know you have to kind of work out you know where the the, where the money's going to come from from all these things and so um for instance myself and my wife ran a um an online 
uh, songwriting workshop, which we got a grant for, and we had kids in Tasmania and Melbourne and Sydney and Perth. And this was all in the middle of lockdown. Everyone was in lockdown. And once a week I'd send these lectures out and then we'd get together on a Zoom call on a couple of different groups of kids. And at the end of it, they all wrote these songs and they sent in their part as voice memos and I put it all together. And and you know what? Like it was I was like, I don't know if I'd do it again, but that was amazing. And yes, we made, you know, some of our living out of it and all the rest of it. But it it gave me a buzz and it made me happy. And so my relative happiness, I think, is not just ba- – I don't think we just have a relative happiness. I think we have a relative happiness based on whether we keep evolving and adapting and and we're ourselves, I think. And and I think in this these unprecedented times um, <laughs> that we've had to um, – Everyone's had to evolve and adapt. And for the people who have, they've probably kept some amount of relative happiness through this. So how you're being a creative, you've probably got the capacity to adapt far more than the average person, right? Maybe. I mean- mean, But at the same time as- I've got many ideas, not all good ideas. (laughs) (laughs) How's How's the solo stuff been going? Uh, good. Uh, you know, I I would love to be able to just kind of put a month aside and just, you know, work on that as a chunk. But I think, you know, at the moment it's not really like that. So It's a pretty different mindset, I'd imagine, just, well, uh, you know, from – you, you've got a little bit of support with a band, maybe bigger crowds and things like that, and then and you're putting it all in line just with you. Look, I think I'll keep doing that whether anyone wants to buy those records or not. It's just what I'm driven to do. I'll just keep making records. Um, and, you know, hopefully every once in a while I'll win the lottery and one of those songs will, you know, do well. But, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just keep doing it for the rest of my life no matter what. And, uh, you know, again – I wish I had a chunk of time just to finish the record. I've like I've done written most of the songs, I've recorded a bunch of the drum tracks, you know, I've kind of but it's just me in a room, you know, having to do all the parts and so some days I'm like I think this is good and then some days I'm like this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um but I'm also this week working on someone a, a guy from Melbourne who's meant to be over here doing his record and um he couldn't come over because of COVID. So I'm having to record, write all the instruments and record them myself. And then I'm going to beam in to his, uh, to a session that he's doing in Melbourne um, where he'll be with an engineer and, and the vocal mic. And I'll literally just be like, yep, do that again. Okay, cool. Can you sing it like this? And I'll be on zoom on the other hand. And I've never done a record like that, but Hey, now you, uh, you released a YouTube video on a similar kind of thing, like a, uh, you're all playing in your own different houses. It's, it's a yeah, lot of, a lot of us. So that in excess cover. Yes, we, yeah, we did that. We've we've just got another one that's uh, ready to go, which is uh, under the Milky Way tonight. Oh, yeah, no, but yeah, we're just gonna keep kind of churning There's out another, some Aussie yeah, songbook bass, classics. Bass playing frontman in church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's your favourite? Bass playing front man, other than yourself, of course. Well, oof, Jesus. Sting. Well, Sting's definitely up there, but I'd, I'd McCartney trumps Sting, Sting any day of the week, really. You Roger know. Waters? Well, yeah, he's definitely up there too. I mean, I love Roger Waters' stuff as well. Mm. Um, but, yes, there's, there's a few of us it's, out there. It's really – is it? well, I don't know. You probably don't find it hard, but it's so syncopated, the bass, and it's playing te- and it's singing. It's a terrible idea. I don't yeah. recommend it to anyone. It Unless you're just going boom, boom, boom. Well, yeah, to play the bass and and be a singer is like again just you, it's you know, not common. Right? They're two they're two like opposing rhythms all the time, and mm. so I spent many a night after like writing the bass lines and then singing the parts, then recording them, and then getting ready to go on tour and sitting in front of the TV and just getting that muscle memory well, of playing yeah, and singing at the same time. You've got to try and automate it, right? Yeah, so I think yeah. I read this book by um, oh, is that by Victor Wooten? He's a, he's a bass player, isn't he? I'm not sure. He, your your bass nerdness goes further no, down the mine. No, it's, it's very limited to purely Victor Wooten. But he was talking about when you're practicing, you have yeah. to um, you have to actually practice subconsciously as well. Yeah. So he'd yeah. sit in front of the TV and not yeah. think about what he was doing. Yeah. Because you have to be able to sing and and yes. separate yeah. yourself. Like, and once you get it, like once you've actually got it, you're like, oh, how how did I ever find this hard? You know, because your brain, you know, makes those little connections. But uh, getting there is like rehabilitating after a car crash. Sometimes you're like, yeah. oh, just oh. <laughs> so, I was going to say, you'd almost have to be careful to not to your bass lines not to morph into something that fits a bit more nicely with with how you sing. You I know? just think that happens, and and right. and you just you got to forgive yourself a little bit yeah. for that. Yeah. You know, can you can you do them as well live as you you would on the record? Look, uh, I think it's more of that scenario of that you – it never sounds exactly the same as the record because you end up 
finding some kind of little cheap moments to, you know, and it's much of a muchness with a big live band going on. No one really notices if you miss a little boom boom here and there. Did you, when you hear your music coming back from a symphony orchestra, do you just go, oh man, that's good? Yeah, it's it's pretty. It was a pretty special feeling. Doing, Who did the arrangements? We had like eight different arrangers because, as you can imagine, it's a pretty humongous job to write those whole things up. Um, but yes, it was magical to hear these songs it that must, I'd written in my be bedroom amazing. become yeah. orchestral moments. Mm. But um, but also it gave me a lot of respect for what um, the conductor does as well. We, we had an amazing chap called Ian Grandage, who you know I luckily had met and known for a little bit beforehand, but. Um, the psychology that that a um, the, you know the, he did the, the pen, Ben Fold stuff as well, didn't he? Possibly, yeah, yeah. He's done. He's quite accomplished. Uh, he did. Mm. He he arranged from the sea, and um, I think it another stayed so true to the actual songs. And yeah, it, and, and, some of them yeah. Were, were really magic. Some of them didn't even make the grade as well. We'd right. do them in rehearsal. We had uh, we were lucky to do some rehearsals with Wazo before they we went and performed them, and some of them we were like, oh no, I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's going to make the grade. Mm. But uh, you know, some of the arrangers were like for the Black Fingernails, for instance, were in the audience, and we'd be able to have these. Real real-time conversations but also you know being in a band as opposed to an orchestra like you know what what the cello and the bass does in, and or even the percussion does in an orchestra is very different to what it does in a rock and roll band so you know we would be having these conversations with ian like after rehearsals or, or you know sound check and being like well the the cellos and the bass need to be on the groove and the percussionist needs to play on the groove not behind the beat or whatever uh and so he would have to go in there and just and handwrite on everyone else's, you know, um, or I think there would be like a master, a master, you know, um, piece of music that he would actually handwrite on, and then that would be like sent out to all the players, and then the players would just play it that night. And, and did you have to pretend that you knew all that what all those words and lines meant? I just gave up. I was, I, you know, there was a brief moment in time where I could read music and and it, it was relevant to me, but I didn't keep it up. I wish I had of because I think it's a very handy thing to know, but it wasn't really relevant for what I was doing in rock and roll. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, so when we did the orchestra, I felt like a, an ant amongst giants. <laughs> <laughs> would you go back and be a classical artist or is it? It's just not you. No, but there's a couple of moments in my life where I I would have kept playing violin. Um, I definitely would and have. What stopped What stopped you when you? Were, oh, I when just it was irrelevant. I didn't listen to any violin music, and when I started playing bass, I, I loved rock and roll. So I was just like, this makes sense to me. And I think that's the you know for all of the romanticism that parents have about their kids playing different instruments, like. It's going to be engagement, right? Well, there's a certain point where it's in, unless they just want to be a technician, like just play the parts and, and they get a real buzz of reading music. And that is a thing and that is cool. It's not creative though. But it's not a creative way of playing. And if you are a creative player, then that's not going to make a lot of sense to you. Again, there and should be a perfect blend between those two places. Do they recognize that you, I mean, by lying early, yeah. it's actually a, a pretty big sign of both intelligence and creativity. I tell people that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, did they know that? Yeah, he's he's a creative. He, there's nothing that we can do for him. Ah, uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, uh, you know, I uh, know disrespect to my mum. She was great and very encouraging of my music career. When I said I wanted to go off and become a professional musician, she didn't say, "What are you going to do for a real job?" She was just like, "Okay, you just need to work a hundred percent at that." And I said, "Okay, it's a deal." Um, but uh, in saying that, I really think you know. Just family environment and parental support, and the, that's that's why kids do their homework. That's why you know kids achieve, you know, who aren't just weird freaks, you know, who that who achieve bigger and better things is having a support network around you. And um, you know, I don't think my mum was great at doing that. I don't ever remember doing my homework in my life, you know. Uh, but I did study really hard at music, and I played. And when I discovered music and that was my thing, I never looked back and I worked really, really hard at it. But there was a lot of other aspects around that that could have been supported as well. And I think for any kids or parents, you know, doing music, it's like it just comes down to a support network. You know, if you've got if you've got someone who keeps you accountable and sits down going, cool, what have you got to work on? And like, oh, okay, this is what I've got to work on. You'll do the work. And then later on in life, you'll look back and go, I'm so glad I did the work. Mm. Can I can I ask in terms of um – you know, in terms of your own kids and, and kids here who love their music and who may potentially want to become artists themselves, what advice would you have for 
you know, young musicians going into the industry, given how radically different it is now with Spotify and, you know, just just how tra- transformed the industry is in the last sort of 10 to 15 years? Jeez, uh, I don't know <laughs> how to answer that question. But I think that, you know, if you really love it and you have to do it, then, you know, by all means, get amongst it. Um, but I do think the one of the myths of, you know, rock and roll or music in general um, funnily enough is that it's that it's easy and that you just kind of like hang out with your mates and it just happens you know there's i think one of the most essential things that you do whether you're going to have a successful career in music or not is be collaborative and and do it with your friends because it is a great pastime but if you want to make it into a profession then you treat it like a profession and you work really hard at it because you know I'm still discovering new things about everything that I do that I, and that I, every week I look at, I'm like, geez, okay, I need to work harder at this, you know, to be better at that. There's never a point where you're not working really, really hard at your profession, like any profession in the world. Mm. Um, and you know, maybe that gets taken into account if you're more so if you're practicing to be in an orchestra because you've got to do your hours and you've, you know, you've got to do your band practice and all those things. But if it's up to you and you're sitting in a room by yourself and you have to create like like alchemy you have to create gold out of nothing then it's just really down to how hard are you willing to work because if you're willing to work really really hard you could have a career in it like you could have a career in anything but you got to work hard is it but is it also worth kind of it's probably pretty worth having some savvy savvy sort of business orientated mates as well who go oh you might be able to yeah. You know, Again, have because most have one an artist, don't have know, one guy in the band who knows how to do that. That's always a good idea. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We've got it. Are we quick fire questions? Yeah. We're, near the, we're at the end here, Kev. Amazing. Cool. So, well, yeah, thank, we, thanks for having us, chaps. Oh, I, we so appreciate it. this. Is awesome. I can't wait to come in and and talk to all of the the dudes and uh, and get amongst um, some songwriting. We're just going to do it as well. All right, we excellent. We just, <laughs> Get out of the way, kids. Oh, they didn't make <laughs> yeah, yeah. this mine. Oh, guys, I've, I've got an idea for a song. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, oh, this is taken from our last interview with an astrophysicist. I said, besides astronomy, how do you how do you relax? But um, well, so besides astronomy, lots how of do you drugs. Relax? No, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was from the last interview. Uh, apart from music, how do I relax? Um, look. I'm I'm a huge music nerd and it's generally around being a nerd. Um I love listening to podcasts. I do a lot a lot of podcast listening. I love reading. I do a lot of reading. Um you know, I am very lucky that I have uh my wife is also my best friend, so we have a lot of fun just hanging out together. I also have four children, so you know, when I'm not doing music or music related things, I'm generally just hanging out with my family and that I actually really enjoy that. So yeah. Awesome. Deserted Island, favourite album. Ooh. What, what day of the week are you getting stranded on this album? <laughs> I mean, uh, Island. <laughs> We've had, what have we had so far? We've had The Police. Yep. There's been uh, Evolutionary Biologist was on the show a couple yep. of months ago. Oh, he was The Police. He was Synchronicity, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 There's some classical had, albums I'd never heard of. Okay. Yeah. We've had um, Blood on the Tracks. Okay. Peter Bob Dylan. I'm um, probably going to say the White Album. Yes, good call. Oh, good call. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. Okay. Excellent. And all right, songs to keep you interested. Yeah, exactly. Well. It's a double album. That's yep. always good. Yeah. The uh, <laughs> yeah. artwork. It's purely for the most interesting. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, what book or books has had the most profound impact on you, or perhaps what you'd recommend most? Something that really changed you. Well. I don't know if this is probably the best book I've ever read in my life, but probably a significant moment in time. Um, when I was like about 17, I read a book by Tom Robbins called The Jitterbug Perfume, and it seemed to describe in a fantasy kind of setting all of my kind of philosophical views on life. So for a long time afterwards, anytime I'd meet a girl that I was really keen on, um, I would be like, you know what, you should read this book. And I would buy it. I, I think I bought more copies of the Jitterbug Perfume than any. I probably kept the sales of Tom Robbins up in Australia. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I would, I would buy it. And if, if the girl read it and got it and she was, like, on that wavelength, I was like, I think this can work. It <laughs> <laughs> was a good test. Yeah. Okay, last couple of questions. What has been the biggest challenge you've faced in your, in your life, in your career, you, you pick? 
Um, well, I guess, you know, you're always going to be stuck in the moment of where you are right now. And, you know, to be, uh, you know, aged past the point of, you know, someone in your mid twenties being on triple J that that's a challenge mentally, but like in theory, you've probably got more people listening to you than you, you ever had. Um, you know, as far as COVID goes, you know, that's a huge challenge in itself. Um, you know, just to kind of keep the business alive in when a large financial part's been taken out of what you do. But I would have to say, you know, the real challenge is just back to that kind of like running analogy of like the mental blocks of breaking through stuff all the time. You, once you break through, you always get to the other side and you always keep going to a place that you love and that is amazing and creative and cool. But I find that pretty much every day, you know, whether that is about like getting on stage or finishing writing a song or completing a project or whatever, like that, that, that is the biggest challenge, just like breaking through that wall every day. And it's, it's every day and you just got to kind of prepare yourself for it. And if, as long as you're okay with that, you can just keep doing what you're doing. What habit have you formed in the last five years that has been most beneficial to you? <laughs> Um, working in school hours, it sounds really unromantic, but like I go in at nine o'clock in the morning and I finish at three. Um, and I've had to just adapt to that. Like I used to be able to just rock into the jam room at any hours. I'm like, I've got an idea. Um, but now I just have to do the Nick Cave thing where I just go in and I work. My kids are at school. I work in those hours. There's never enough hours in the day, but then I clock off and I go home and I be a dad. And, you know, some days I feel like, I. Oh, I'm letting myself down by not working, you know, 12 hours a day every day. But then, you know, I have a relationship with my children and I'm also still prolific enough to keep the bills paid and keep calling myself, you know, a musician. So I think that's been the best um, habit that I've gotten into that, you know, it, it seemed unromantic at the time, but I'm really glad I did it. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming in. Um, you've, you've, it's been awesome having you in here. You've made a big impact on us from your music and I think you've made a big impact on the rest of the world as well. So thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks, Cheers. Guys. Cheers. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Range Project, proudly supported by Scotch Parents, Scotch Teaching and Learning and the Old Scotch Collegians Association.